Cageclub.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. everybody i'm nico i'm kevo and this is the end of the world as we know it this is of course hercules armageddon no not quite it uh you know i don't i don't know any other gods osiris bye bye time this is osiris bye bye time no it's um it's gotta be thor ragnarok yeah and i'm ready to ragnarok and roll when we last left our heroes we left off in a shakespearean drama with some astrophysics thrown in for good measure and we're picking up on a comedy about drunk people. About drunk aliens with not a lot of science. Although they did consult a theoretical physicist for this film. So, you know, if you're annoyed about any of the science or you think stuff like, that looks like a quasar star in the middle of an Einstein-Rosen bridge, if that sounds dumb to you, there's someone in particular you can point to and say, why? It's like Grey's Anatomy has a medical team of experts, and they still signed off on that episode where that lady got impaled by a unicorn, but it was okay because everybody learned a lesson about family. No, that was just a joke from the OC. Real Grey's Anatomy has enough crazy crap that happens on it that you don't have to make things up. It's all made up. So, I think Thor Ragnarok is one of the more interesting Marvel movies. The first time I saw it, I liked it. And then every time I would talk to somebody about it, especially at like a con, I loved it. In retrospect, but I didn't remember loving it while I watched it. And I thought that was interesting. And I think my initial issues with this film were primarily based on the shock of not getting what I expected. And I'm not saying I was even disappointed. Ultimately, this is probably either my favorite or second favorite Marvel movie, period. And it's just startling how good it is and brilliant and funny and it's the best performance you get out of Chris Hemsworth, and I just want to watch it again and again. And this, I just loved it so much. Kevo, stop me from gushing. I think you put it pretty succinctly when you said it wasn't what you expected. That's very strongly how I feel about it, too. It reminds me of my initial reaction to Star Wars The Last Jedi. After the initial shock, I realized the shock was just because I'd spent two years thinking about what the movie would be in my head based off of how the previous film ended. Thor the Dark World ended with Loki sitting on Odin's throne and Thor going off and doing his thing with Jane Foster. And when we went into this film, we knew there was going to be no Natalie Portman, so we didn't know what happened between them. Uh, The last time that we saw Thor was Ultron, so we didn't know what epic adventure he had been on this whole time. And the movie that we got in Thor Ragnarok was so out there with everything that it delivered on everything everything about sakar and the elements of planet hulk that they put into this film completely came from out of nowhere but there's some of the things that made it so great when you said there would be no natalie portman i was like do i have a natalie portman joke what kind of portman doesn't float no that that's not gonna work here so i feel like they handle natalie portman's absence passably yeah it's natalie passably and i was fine with it and now 
I'm left sort of fascinated because I don't think that they ever even really replaced a love interest for Thor in this film. I don't feel like we go somewhere romantic for Thor. They almost did with Thor and Valkyrie to add more fuel to the bisexual erasure flames of that character. There was supposed to be romantic chemistry between Thor and Valkyrie, but screenwriter Eric Pearson sort of chipped that out of the story, deciding more to focus on a mutual respect for the characters and dealing with Valkyrie's PTSD and was like, you know, they could still get together in a future film, but let's make Valkyrie a character before we just throw Thor at her. And that is a notable departure from the previous films. And something occurred to me while we were starting this just a moment ago. I realized this is the last of the trilogies we're going to see. This is the last of the solo trilogies coming to an end. We had Iron Man 1, 2, and 3. We had Captain America, Captain America the Winter Soldier, and Captain America Civil War. We had Thor, Whiny Lightning Boy. We had Thor the Dark World. And now this is it, Thor Ragnarok. I hadn't considered that either, actually, yeah. It's weird to think about because this journey is coming to a conclusive and startlingly fast end. It's like right upon us. I feel like the Iron Man movies, the the lowest part was Iron Man 2, Too Many Iron Men. Hmm. And I think I don't like Winter Soldier. Obviously, if you listen to our Winter Soldier episode, you heard me say that already. And I think Civil War is probably the best of the Cap movies. And then I think Ragnarok is by far the best of the Thor movies. But I do want to say, it's not that I think Thor the Dark World is bad. I actively think Age of Ultron is bad in many places. I just don't think there's anything good about Thor the Dark World. I like it, but I like it kind of like... Okay, so when you have to get your oil and filter change and you sit in the waiting room and you notice that... Like Judge Judy is on and you don't like it, but it's on. So you're not going to look away. You try to look at your phone, but it's still on. It's like you'd have to get up and face the other. But so you just keep watching and you're like, I don't. Why does Rob think that Mark took his cat? What's what? I think the only thing that makes Thor the Dark World likable is the same thing that redeems Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, even for people who don't particularly like it, which is that it's at least more of the same. It was a lot of more of the same from Thor 1. It was, you know, Shakespearean dialogue undercut by modern slapstick. It was mythic gods juxtaposed with modern sci-fi. I view Thor and Thor the Dark World really as a two-film series, and Thor Ragnarok is just so completely unrelated from the rest of the Thor films. It's why I'm glad these don't have numbers, because this doesn't feel like Thor 3 at all. And I think part of that ties into a statement I made previously, that I don't think that the Iron Man trilogy is actually the Iron Man trilogy. I think the Iron Man first trilogy is Iron Man 1, 2, Avengers Assemble. The second Iron Man trilogy is... Iron Man 3, Age of Ultron, Civil War. So in that regard, I kind of get what you mean about like surrendering the numbers. We don't really need the numbers because we can interact these films and they each give a different read and a different take. If you take this part from this one and this one and that, you can piece them together the way you want. You don't need to watch all of them. 
in some ways, if you read Thor the same way that you've read the Iron Man series, that would make Thor 1, the first Thor film, the Avengers, Thor 2, and Thor the Dark World, Thor 3, building a complete trilogy, and this would just be a fourth standalone Thor film. I love those sort of cuts. Well, I actually think it starts a second Thor trilogy. I think that's going to be Ragnarok, Infinity War, and Endgame. Wild, wild, wild indeed. Oh, look, there's Osiris. Oh, Osiris. Osiris, can we have a word with you? <laughs> All right. Well, Kevo, it's time to take us behind the hammer. Nice. Nice one. First, I want to say that I just learned today that the film's release in 2017 was the 55th anniversary of the debut of Thor in August of 1962, The Incredible Hulk in May of 1962, as well as being the centennial of co-creator Jack Kirby. That's a lot of magic. I really enjoy it. It's yet another trilogy. <laughs> nice. The cinematographer is H Javier Aguirre-Zarobe. I'm so white. I'm so sorry. <laughs> He's done a few things here and there. He did the second two Twilight movies. Not one, not four or five, just two and three. Okay. The others in 2001. Fright Night in 2011, which featured music by, by Raman Djawadi, who did the music for Iron Man 1. So that's kind of cool. And he will be doing the cinematography for the Dora the Explorer movie coming out next year. Okay, but which Dora canon is it? Is it like cute young Dora canon? Or is it like like teen, you know, firecracker Dora canon? Or is it like some sort of weird new adult Dora canon where she fights Carmen Sandiego for a jewel? I think she's at most a tween in the live action movie. And it's still supposed to basically be very Dora-y. I'm not sure how it's going to work because I don't especially care. I guess we'll find out when there's a trailer and we see whether or not she talks directly to the theater audiences, encouraging them to speak Spanish. I hope so. And then says everything twice. Yeah, I really hope so. Also, the music for that film is going to be done by John Debney, who did the music for Iron Man 2, so go figure. So much is happening in the world of Dora the Explorer film adaptations, but I do need to be very clear with you. I do now need an Indiana Jones heist off film between Gina Rodriguez as Carmen Sandiego and Stephanie Beatriz. I'm there. I'm there. All right, so if we could just get that film, I am completely in. I can't wait to see it happen. Ava Longoria, you produce things. Produce this. Stephanie Beatriz as an adult Dora the Explorer is actually everything that I was hoping for. So yeah, go for it. What the hell were we talking about? Thor? We were talking about Thor. Thor the Explorer! I'm really proud of us and the show we produce. Thank you. And if you thought the episode couldn't continue to get weirder, uh, I hope that you liked the score l watching and listening to Thor Ragnarok because it was done by Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo. Whip it good. I actually think he's better known to our generation as the guy who wrote the best piece of annoying jingle music ever, the Rugrats theme song. <laughs> yes. Actually, he's done more than that. Obviously, I did my my usual duty and looked into other things that he's done music for, including Pee-wee's Playhouse from 86 to 1990, Adventures in Wonderland from the Disney Channel from 1999 to 1995. Remember that? I sure do. I actually really enjoyed that. He also did like all the music on Rugrats and all the music on All Grown Up as well, and did the music on 2015's Grandfathered 
Stamos reference. All right. So I think what you just said is the score to this film sat on a plane next to John Stamos one time, and John Stamos told it it had good hair. Yeah, could you imagine Stamos as the Grandmaster? That would have been amazing. Don't mess with my arena! Nah. <laughs> uh, also, the score for Drop Dead Gorgeous, Herbie Fully Loaded, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, and has done like a lot of franchises in the last ten years. All of those Lego movies, including the first one, the second one, and Lego Ninjago. Both Jump Street movies, both Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which means that he worked with John Francis Daly and his partner from the Spider-Man movies, as well as doing the entire Hotel Transylvania franchise. At some point, I got confused in there, and I thought that you were saying these were all Lego films, and I was like, I do not remember Lego 21 Jump Street, but I need to see the Channing Tatum Lego. Yes, I'm still so sad that we're not going to get 21 Jump Street meets Men in Black. Maybe we still can, and it'll be starring Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson as a sequel to their upcoming MIB movie. Please. Yeah, Thor and Valkyrie are about to make a Men in Black movie. This is so confusing. I feel like this is the most quiet, amazing thing that's happening in pop culture right now. No one's talking about this movie. Even if it ends up being terrible, it's still starring Emma Thompson, Tessa Thompson, and Chris Hemsworth. Where did this come from? The other most amazing thing in pop culture right now is Brie Larson and Tessa Thompson's nonstop Twitter love affair. That has been fantastic. Are they? 100%. They keep retweeting pictures of themselves that fans have drawn or saying how hot each other looks in things. It's great. That is so cute. Well, onto writing credits. It was announced all the all the way back in January of 2014 that Craig Kyle and Christopher Yost would be writing the script for this film. Christopher Yost returning after contributing to the script for Thor The Dark World and Craig Kyle taking on his first major screenwriting credit, better known as creator of X-23, I believe, Nico. So these two have a fascinating history. They created X-23 on X-Men Evolution, who is a great character, super big fan of Laura. I think she's tremendous. But they have kind of a hit-or-miss comic career. They did a lot of things like blow-up busfuls of kids, and just a lot of just shock stuff and everything was bigger and they really divided fans. Ultimately, their contributions are good. They went on to do some little things that kind of didn't mean much, but it's cool to see them working together again because I believe I mentioned when, when Christopher Yost came up previously that I was surprised to not see Craig Kyle's name there. So it was really cool to see him join his partner and kind of be that partner's by know the mass. And the fact that you were surprised to say that they were brought in to write this movie makes a lot of sense. Helps explain why Eric Pearson would have been brought in to rewrite their script. Eric Pearson is a name that has come up a few times. He has been a Marvel script doctor on several films. He did uncredited work on Ant-Man and wrote several of the Marvel one-shots before finally getting that brass ring here. It is great to see somebody come from another side of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and get onto one of these big films like we've said they love to promote from within it's really surprising to see craig kyle and chris yost on this film because they're known for their x-men work they're not known for any work on thor thor's had a very select number of writers in the last few years since his return I believe he came back in 2008 under the pen of j michael straczynski who helped out on the first thor movie created babylon 5 was a head writer on murder she wrote had a very famous spider-man run that would tie into the comic book Civil War, which was an equally big time for comic book Spider-Man as 
Civil War was for movie Spider-Man. It would go on to be written by guys like Matt Fraction, Karen Gillan, but it never went to these two. So it's really surprising to hear that two guys known for their X-Men work would get it over, say, Jason Aaron, who's been writing the character since 2012, also known for his X-Men work. Yeah, that is pretty weird. I agree. It's especially weird in context of something else that I discovered while doing my research. There was a woman who worked on the script of this film named Stephanie Folsom. As we've seen many times over these films, the number of screenwriters that are added and removed or leave the project of their own volition, screenwriters change, and so credits change accordingly. At the end of the day, in January 2017, it was stated that Eric Pearson would be receiving sole screenwriting credit with story credit going to Kyle Yost and Folsom, which, you know, I guess everyone was super fine with that until the credits were later updated following September of that year with Pearson as screenwriter and story credit going to Kyle and Yost. Folsom took issue with Marvel marketing the film with these credits because the WJ hadn't yet determined what the final credits for the film would be and tried to fight for recognition on the script but ultimately was left off of the credits of this film. So that's something that I had to discover upon digging through the backstory of this. But, you know, don't feel too sad for her because her next co-writing credit on a film is going to be coming out in June as she is the co-writer of Toy Story 4 with Andrew Stanton. And you can't help but think that she kind of got like a lateral move across the Disney Corporation out of it, at least. I think it's great to hear that even if she didn't get this credit because of WGA rules, she's able to still parlay that into some major work. It's impossible to believe, but at the same time, it's the world we live in. Marvel, who is famous for not doing enough for diversity and hiring enough women, they're not even why this film didn't have a woman's name attached to the credits. Yeah, it's specifically a WGA thing. Marvel was apparently very supportive of her appealing the decision to get her name put on the credits for the film. There was an episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend recently on the CW where a pair of women directors directed an episode, but the Directors Guild would only recognize credit for one of them. And the creator, Rachel Bloom, tried to argue in favor of the other woman getting credit as well. But you know, they have these archaic rules about what qualifies as deserving credit on any given piece of art. Absolutely astounding and terrible. Yeah, pretty much. But that's why I wanted to make sure that I talked about it here. The final puzzle piece of the behind the scenes, of course, is Taika YTT. I personally am not familiar with much of his previous work. I didn't know that he was involved in what we do in The Shadows. That whole franchise, which was a short film in 2005 that led to a feature film in 2014 and now a TV series in 2019, that's all really cool. Were you aware of his work previously from this? I was aware of his name and aware of his work, but I did not know how they came together. Yeah, his film Hunt for the Wilder People in 2015 still holds the record for top grossing film in New Zealand, I believe, or at least did at least as recently as 2018. That's amazing. They really tried to find people with things to say from different avenues for these films later on. The first few films are very homogenized, but they did find ways to experiment in Phase 2 and Phase 3 especially. Absolutely. Well, in the process of looking for a director in the first place, Marvel presented their prospects with 10 different ideas they had for the film and asked them all to come back with a clearer picture. 
Waititi is just the one that won out. He made a sizzle reel for the tone of what kind of film he wanted to make using clips from other films like Big Trouble in Little China and scored it with Led Zeppelin's The Immigrant Song, which explains how that ended up in this film. And such a central part of the film as well. Something that stuck out to me is this movie has a lot of the same bits, pieces, themes, elements as Guardians of the Galaxy. But Guardians of the Galaxy skews sillier and kiddier. This, I would say, is a little more adult swim than children's block. I think Guardians plays really well to like an eight-year-old, but I think a lot of Ragnarok is designed for an older audience. But it still has all of that weird, unique perspective, and that does have to go to the director, especially if he set so much of the standard the film would be held to before the film even began. Absolutely, and he was told completely to go balls to the walls with whatever he wanted. And obviously, it's within MCU limits. It's funny, as I was doing my research, I found when previous director Alan Taylor confirmed he would not be returning, he specifically stated the Marvel experience was particularly wrenching because I was sort of given absolute freedom while we were shooting, and then in post-production, it turned into a different movie. So that is something I hope never to repeat and don't wish upon anybody else. Conversely, when asked why, after stating in 2012 that he had no interest in big features, where the art of a project was sacrificed for profit, YTT said that he decided to do Thor because he felt like a guest in Marvel's universe, but with the creative freedom to do what I want. And I really see where YTT is coming from. Maybe it's because we worked for the Disney Corporation for a little while in the parks, so we understand the company line. There's, you know, it's it's almost like there's a safety net in the fact that it's part of the MCU. There's this whole grander aspect and responsibility to a bigger franchise that you don't have to worry about if you just think of yourself as a guest star in this world. And I think a lot of artists can't handle that they want full creative control and i get that too but you know you know what you're walking into or at least ytt did at this point i don't know if alan taylor did how many films had come out by the time there was thor eight yeah it's something i like to call neil gaiman syndrome neil gaiman came on to sandman in 1989 and revolutionized comics and after that it kind of seemed like everybody wanted to do their run on a character and everybody was always looking to shake up the status quo and redefine everything. And something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you can't really redefine everything. You can redefine your character, but Thor was going to play the same role in Infinity War, whether this movie was weird or not. He was still going to come in and be Thor. He was still going to come in and represent the Asgardian component of things. So... As much as he wants to play with Thor and play with all the toys of Thor, it's important to remember that there's a responsibility to the bigger picture that takes a really deft hand to make their own voice shine through and let that piece come together for the larger puzzle. It's funny that you even specifically bring up Infinity War because I read that Chris Hemsworth spoke with the Russo brothers before ever even reading the Thor Ragnarok script to know what Thor would be doing in Infinity War and how this would blend together. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There was a grander responsibility above Thor Ragnarok. YTD didn't have to worry about, and that is kind of freeing in a lot of ways. As long as you reach what Marvel wants you to reach by the end of the film, and nothing completely changes the content of the film or the context of the film, I can't imagine 
that, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't make films. But I can't imagine that it's impossible to find places for your voice. And I'm not saying that I understand what it's like to make a multi-billion dollar project come to life. I will never know what drove Joss Whedon away from the Marvel Cinematic Universe at the end of Age of Ultron. But if what it was was this Ragnarok, I'm really glad we got Avengers Assemble, which is probably my number one or number two, because it also gave us this film when Joss Whedon left. And this is my other number one or number two. So I'm really excited to talk about it. Well, and that's the difference in responsibility between those two creators. YTT refers to himself as a guest, but Joss Whedon wasn't a guest. He was a driving force. He's more what James Gunn had been becoming, and we have yet to see whether he will still get back on track to be, which is a driving figure in the franchise. I think that difference in responsibility is probably what drove Joss away. I get that. It's whether you are the architect or you're drawing the blueprints. I just realized I don't know the difference between an architect and like, I don't, I don't know. So please write in and explain to me how architecting blueprints works. On that note, uh, Crocothum, I think we're ready to talk some Ragnarok. One of the more interesting things about the way this movie came together is while it's called Ragnarok, it's most closely related to Planet Hulk. Yeah, and what's especially funny about that is for the longest time, Kevin Feige insisted that Marvel was not looking to do a Planet Hulk film and frequently tried to dispel those rumors. And from what I understand, it has to do with rights. One of the more interesting things is if a Hulk movie is made, Paramount Pictures has a lot more control in the final product than if Hulk is in a film. I believe there's some percentage of the movie Hulk can be in before it's like a Hulk movie. And they were really careful to drop a good amount of the hulkier things about the storyline Planet Hulk to rewind a little bit. Hulk goes out of control and the Marvel Illuminati, who are Reed Richards, Black Panther, Namor, Tony Stark, Xavier... I feel like I'm forgetting someone. They cram him... Oh, Black Bolt. They cram him into a spaceship and blast him into space for being a badass son of a bitch. Where's that movie? Well... Well, we're talking about it. We're talking about it! (laughs) And when he lands on Sakaar, he gets pulled into this battle arena situation, and he meets a big alien lady, and they have a baby, and his name is Scar... And Scar artificially ages really fast and comes to Earth, a really angry teenager. But before that, Hulk comes back to Earth in a storyline called World War Hulk, in which he beats all the heroes to a bloody pulp for sending him into space. And then Scar comes here, and point of my story is, this is not a fucking Thor story! This is 100% a Hulk movie. And... They did their best to make this feel like a Thor movie, because the honest truth is, even though Planet Hulk is a Hulk story, it is the generic alien battle arena world story that is not new to Hulk, that isn't even new to Hulk for the Marvel Universe. So you can see iterations of that throughout the history of comics and the history of fiction, gladiator arenas where people have to fight for their survival. This isn't new, but this specific version of it is very close to Planet Hulk, which, funny little note here, 
Planet Hulk was adapted into an animated movie, and to replace the Silver Surfer, who they didn't have access to, Marvel Studios used Better Ray Bill, who is a longtime big Thor favorite. He's a robot android alien horseman, and he has a really wonderful hammer. There's a statue of Beta Ray Bill at some point in this film, I believe on Sakaar or else on Asgard. I don't remember, but there is that reference, and Beta Ray Bill was almost in this film. So I'm gut-wrenched that he wasn't. He is one of my favorite Thor characters. And so it's kind of funny that in the original, it's, it's Silver Surfer, who they don't have access to, so they switched it to a Thor character, and then... They decided to switch Hulk into the Thor character's spot and give the Hulk role to Thor. So that's a really interesting way to do things. And it's kind of a little backward and inside out. But that is the weird journey this story took to coming here. In a lot of ways, the more recent Ragnarok story that Marvel did was the one that took Thor out of canon before J. Michael Straczynski's run around the time of Avengers Disassembled in 2003-2004. That story did involve Loki betraying everybody. They've done some Ragnarokic things in the in-between, but the last one that was like, Ragnarok was 2004, and it was not this. Well, one executive producer, Brad Winderbaum, says the idea to include the Hulk came very early in development of this film, saying that using Planet Hulk was a, quote, no-brainer, and that putting Thor into a Gladiator Games predicament was a really cool idea, which I agree. I think it created a lot of really awesome imagery. I think it was a really good use of the character, and especially taking into consideration rights and the like. It's noteworthy that Hulk does not appear in this film despite being in trailers from the very beginning until 53 minutes and 36 seconds and the film goes to credits at just about the two hour mark so thor really must be in only about half of this movie when you add up all the minutes i completely think that's a phenomenal point and it also leads me to another thing i want to talk about and i know it might seem a little bit out of sequence but this movie marked the gorgeous birth of short hair Thor. Beautiful, beautiful, short hair, gorgeous man Thor. And I love him so much, and he's so hot, and I even really fucking love when he loses the eye. It's so hot, too. That eye patch looks so good on him. But here's my thing about it. I'm pretty sure that 90% of the images I saw were of short hair Thor, and I don't think that happened till about an hour into the movie, mm. which is crazy. And... I also think it's insane that the hammer is barely in this film. We talk a lot about how iconography sells these movies and how iterations and advancements on the iconography is really important, but it's not like he gets a better hammer this movie. It's almost as if Tony blows up the armors in his third movie and Cap lays down the shield in his third movie and Thor lays down the hammer in his. You know, yeah, that's a really good point. Mjolnir is straight at about 24 minutes and 20 seconds, and the haircut is not to get ahead of the movie discussion. It's the stameo for this film, and that's about 51 minutes into the film. So there's 25 minutes between the destruction of the hammer and the haircut, but they're put really close together in the trailer. Absolutely. I feel like the trailer for this film portrays a very different movie than I get. And how about that gown? 
Whether you're dancing with dwarfs or simply biting the apple, it says, I'm a princess for now. A genie. It's synergy. The marketing guys are very excited to test really well. What's interesting, though, is that's not the only case of something being very different. If you do a little bit of research, and I'll see if I can't find it to maybe link to it on the site, there was a very different logo for Thor early on. And initial plans for Thor were not to do this offbeat, crazy, funny, wacky movie. Initially, talks were going to be, you know, it's sort of another Thor movie. And it just almost feels like this was a last minute Hail Mary get out and save yourself kind of situation. The earliest images of it are it like encased in fire and stone and darkness. And it just looks like another take on the Dark World logo. Yeah, and like with those like that that Celtic ring sort of look to it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So everything about this film was about breaking down the previous version and making it cooler, making it hipper. It got neon lights. They even gave the logo like a fade haircut. They wanted it to look so cool. And I think they managed to do it. One of the coolest things about this movie is it had to give us a different iteration of Thor in 80 different ways. Chris Hemsworth was ready to play a new take on the character. So many of the actors either couldn't be in it or couldn't be in it for very long. A number of the characters that supported this film the entire time are nearly eliminated down to single lines. Zachary Levy basically got a paycheck for showing up and grunting because Vandral doesn't even get any words out before he's killed. Volstag doesn't get through a full line before he's dead. I think Hogan speaks more in this than any previous Thor film, but even he eventually is dispatched by Hela. Unfortunately, Sif was not in this film, not for any gross reasons, but specifically for the fact that the actress already has a job and was busy filming her own show, Blind Spot. Originally, she said she was going to be returning and playing a pivotal role, but like scheduling didn't work out. Ragnarok and Sakaar are two completely different films in every way. Sakaar is just a really weird random adventure happening in the middle of Ragnarok, and that's such a bizarre storytelling choice. I don't know what made them do it. I think they pulled it off, though, because it's all still entertaining, and it's a film that everyone seems to love a lot, but they're completely separate narratives in every way, shape, or form. And speaking of things that are repackaged creatively for this film, it wouldn't be an episode of HTML if we didn't find a place to talk about it. There are supposed to be, or could be, up to four queer characters in this film, either in their comic canon or at some point in the writing of this film. Korg, Loki, Hela, and Valkyrie are all a part of the queer spectrum, either outright gay or bisexual, and while both women were at one point written into the script to be bisexual, I believe there was even a scene filmed for Valkyrie where a woman was leaving her lair. Tessa Thompson begged for it, and it was cut. And evidently it was only cut because that would have been one of the only scenes of her having romance, and Watiti felt that that would sexualize just her bisexual element in a way that could have been gross, and so he left it out for that reason. And I just feel like that's such a such a slap in the face and such an insult however the most fascinating part of it there isn't a romance subplot in the entire fucking movie in fact the only people who have any implicit romance anything are thor and jane's breakup yeah. and valkyrie's 
flashback love interest. And that's implicit. Other than that, there's no romance in this movie, which makes the erasure of four queer characters or four possibly queer characters much less upsetting for me. Okay, I definitely see that. I do. It's not like they were erased in favor of making characters heterosexual, which is always, you know, adding insult to injury. I know that I read that Korg was revealed as gay in the comics back in February of 2011. Loki, at different times of his tenure, has been bi or pansexual. What is the history on Hela and her relation to the queer spectrum? I honestly couldn't very genuinely give you a great answer about the comics. It is complicated because villains are often treated queerly as a trope. More specifically, Hela is queer according to either the screenwriter or the novelization writer, because I believe the novelization has it that she is queer. So, unfortunately, Marvel loves its villains that are men and act super gay and then become women and are vaguely flirty with their their male protagonist and then become male again and are still pretty queer about it. So Marvel has like a long history of troublingly queer villains and I could not tell you Hela's genuine relationship with that statistic, but there is definite canon confirmation that at one point there was queer Hela. So that makes her Hela queer. Nice, nice. I like that. It's just frustrating. I think we've made a pretty clear case over the last 17 films that, you know, we're not really asking for much. We pointed to all the places that are so visibly heterosexual and to have filmed a scene that was supposed to give a character bisexual visibility. Because I think there is still some flirty moments between her and Thor in this film, even if there is no outright romance. It's just deeply frustrating. And, you know, you have to understand why people feel away when things like this happen over and over and over again. It is certainly definitive that there were up to four queer characters and their queerness was all erased. You have to feel a specific way. But one more time, I do give some credit to really the only Lothario lascivious character is Scourge. And I'm pretty okay with that. Yeah, even Grandmaster, you know, characters like that generally tend to come across very sexual assaulty, and I don't think that I got vibes from that, from that character, especially knowing that he is supposed to be the brother of Benicio del Toro's character, the Collector, who definitely gives off, like, way creepy, rapey vibes. Uh, the Grandmaster is a lot more fun. He was a very interesting villain to counterbalance all of the Hella stuff being the other side of the villain spectrum for this movie. And I can't wait to discuss that movie with you. However, it appears that this episode of HTML has run out of time. So, before we can get to the world ending, Kevo, where can everybody find you online? Instagram and Twitter at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. Don't forget to check out our work on our awesome comic with our amazing team over at KidRiotComics.com where you can check out diverse, inclusive comics for free. If you liked this show, you'll probably like our other shows like X is for Podcast, where along with our boyfriend Jonah and our best friend Kyle, we take a look at the uncanny X-Men comic book franchise starting in 1975 and moving our way forward. 
as well as Now and Again, which I do with my childhood best friend, Chris, where we listen to the Now That's What I Call Music series. We'll be coming up on the Carly Rae Jepsen Emotion Minute, where we dissect her pop masterpiece Emotion in the next coming weeks. So keep an ear out for that. Check out the other shows on Cage Club as well and throw some money toward the Patreon. Keep this thing running and make sure that you get your say in the upcoming shows that they might be producing. I'm also on Instagram over at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right. So we're going to keep on crack and Ragnarokin' and Ragnarolin'. Osiris, bye-bye. And your name is? I'm Thor. You're Thor? Well, it hurts.